Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. The fact that he's intertwined a layer of bureaucracy that we have seen has failed before is the challenge that we have. And the Prime Minister, to his credit, has made it very clear he doesn't tend to change that and, and split those that question up. But that is, I think, unfortunately going to split the country. Um, if you only look at the polls now, this should be a unifying moment and it should have been about constitutional recognition, not about another layer bureaucracy. You don't need a bigger bureaucracy, you just need a better one. Hello, I'm Paul Karp, Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent. Today I'm joined in the podcave by the Nationals leader, David Littleproud, who is also the Shadow Minister for Agriculture. I've invited him onto the pod to get an opposition perspective on the one-year anniversary of the Albanese government and how the Nationals and Liberals are working together in opposition. For a government view, I can't recommend political editor Catherine Murphy's interview with Anthony Albanese highly enough. The feature article from that is titled, One Year In, Anthony Albanese is Betting Big on Australia's Better Angels. You should find a link on the page for this episode of Australian Politics. We'll also be discussing with David Littleproud, The Voice, upcoming environmental protection legislation, native forest logging and the nature repair market. Let's get into it. Hello, David. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, a year ago, the coalition led by Scott Morrison and Barnaby Joyce was defeated at the 2022 election and both the Liberal and National parties emerged with new leaders for the 47th Parliament. Was there a message for the coalition in that election result? And do you see your role as leader as needing to renovate the Nationals' image? Yeah, of course, there's a message in every election. You need to listen, you need to understand, uh, and you need to try and rebuild trust where you've lost it. And, and you've got to be honest about that and have a reflective look that uh, is both transparent but also harsh. Uh, and we lost a lot of we lost a lot of voters, and particularly in the cohort of 18 to 54 year old women uh, and young people. We've always had challenges in trying to engage them on our side of politics, and that's why uh, after this election, when I became leader, I wanted to make Make sure that the nationals recast ourselves, but we did that after a methodical process of going out, listening, learning, understanding, and now trying to rebuild that trust for us in regional areas. Even though we held on to all our seats, uh, I think uh, it would be hubris to say we had a great election. We had some near-death experiences in some of our seats, and you've got to be honest about that, and you've got to understand why. So we've we've started that process, and much of our policy formation now will go to the core of that constituency that we want to rebuild the trust while maintaining the, the balance that did vote for us. But I think there are some 
clear messages. Um, we were a government that were there for a long time and my opportunity now is to also make sure that we evolve with regional Australia because that's that's our sole purpose. We don't represent capital cities. We have a purity of purpose. Uh, we only represent the 30% of Australians that live outside of capital cities. So I think the lessons for me is that we're not just a political party. We need to be a movement for regional Australia and that's bringing as many regional Australians, no matter the demographic, with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a view among uh, some Liberals who lost inner city seats that the Nats are uh, dragging their heels and driving a hard bargain on net zero and then complaining about the targets that they'd adopted really harmed the Liberals' vote. Do you want to respond to that and do you think we'll see a similar disconnect on emissions reduction between the Libs and Nats now or are you on the same song sheet with Peter Dutton? Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the most respectful and mature conversations we've had in our party room was when we signed up to net zero. I strongly believe that we had to. We have an international commitment uh, and it's the right thing for generations to come more than anything. Uh, And I'm confident that we can reach net zero before 2050. I think capital flows will prove that and they always do in the world. They go to where problems need to be solved and this is a problem that needs to be solved and that's where I've always believed technology will get us there and I think that's an exciting thing for Australia. So the debate for us is really about the impact on the people that we represent because invariably those costs uh, are at the expense of those industries and those jobs that are in regional Australia. So how do we protect those with technology that gives them a future? Not necessarily just them, but their kids. Because uh, one of the things that drive me to become a national is that I'm just sick of seeing generation after generation young people leaving regional Australia and going to capital cities. It's time to bring our young people home. It's time to keep them at home. And that's the opportunity I see in it. So uh, in terms of um, what we did, it was good that the National Party got there. It's a transactional relationship with the Liberal Party. We are two separate parties. Coalition is, is not the party. There are two parties within that. We have values and principles. Our basis was to protect those industries as best we could, knowing that there is a transition but what was the protection in the investment that would create the next generation's jobs for us to keep that next generation there? So uh, we don't resolve from the fact that we actually asked for that protection and I'm glad that we got it. And unfortunately, that's been wound back now, which we're very concerned about. But our commitment uh, to the environment is still there. One of the one of the biggest legacies I believe I left as Agriculture Minister is what the, the government is now taking up is the Biodiversity Stewardship Program. Now that's about rewarding farmers, not for carbon abatement, solely. It's actually about improvement in biodiversity. I put in place a measure that we are the first country in the world that can measure an improvement in biodiversity. So instead, we've got all these blunt instruments of carbon farming, planting trees, but we're not measuring the improvement environment. And in fact, in some cases, uh, it's actually had perverse environmental outcomes. Whereas if we measure and pay uh, as stewards of our land for improvement in biodiversity as well as carbon, you actually get what you're trying to achieve is reduce our carbon emissions, but we actually get a better environment in our biodiversity. Diversity. And I think that's world leading. It's a world first. And to the Albanese government's credit, um, they're calling it, I think, the Nature Repair Program. I don't care what they call it, but it's basically verbatim our legislation. And I'm proud of the fact that it's it's stood the test of time of a changing government. And that's that's really what anyone who comes into politics and gets to sit in a ministerial chair should try and aim for, is that their legacy lasts other governments. Uh, And that's one thing that I'm profoundly proud of, to have a world first that actually is going to improve our biodiversity on our farms around this country and and beyond. Um, I think that's something as Australians we should be damn proud of. And those are the practical things I'm committed to making sure the nationals uh, are pragmatic on and making sure that our people get get a, a competitive and financial advantage out of it. 
Nature repair market. Uh, listeners also might know uh, know it as uh, the Green Wall Street, which the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek referred to it as. And now the now the Greens have really latched onto that to to try and beat the idea to death. But that that has bipartisan support from from the coalition. C- can I ask though, will there be integrity in ensuring that those are genuine um, improvements in biodiversity? And do you think farmers will see much benefit from that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And in fact, um, the person that I got to design this is I, I hold in the highest esteem is Professor Andrew McIntosh. He designed this for me and the whole basis of this was to make sure there was integrity. I think um, he took courage to come out and to actually question some, uh, some of the uh, carbon abatement programs that were out there. Uh, and I think it is important you have people with the courage to do that. Now, obviously, the review came through and much of that review, uh, to be candid, actually backed what what Professor McIntosh was saying. So it's important there is integrity, whether it be in carbon abatement, but also these new markets of biodiversity, because if you don't have integrity, they don't have value. It's a simple market principle. I'm seeing a bit of a shift as I get around. Farmers are are seeing this coming. I think you find they're going to participate, but I think they're going to hold on to their carbon credits and their biodiversity credits because the, the, the marketplace around the world is shifting and they, everyone wants to know the provenance of their food and fibre. And so if they can't prove and demonstrate that they're effectively net zero and they've, they've got world's best biodiversity on their property, then they're going to have a, a devalued product. So I think farmers are actually getting ahead of this. They're seeing where the markets are moving internationally and they're holding on to them. They're, they're doing the work, but they want to make sure. And that's that's the exciting thing about getting that measurement of, of being able to measure an improvement in biodiversity, because that puts us in a world-leading position for Australian farmers and gives them the opportunity to say, well, if I've, I've got myself there and then I've got extra to sell into a market, well and good. And I think you'll see that's where it is. The volumes will come down because farmers see they'll need that for their social licence to sell their product. Now, how do you think the Albanese government is tracking on their election promises generally? And do you think they've been a good government for regional Australia? Well, unfortunately, I mean, I'll give credit where credit's due. I think the government's done a very good job in foreign affairs. Uh, I think Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong have, have done an exemplary job. And I think, I think as Australians, they've represented us very well internationally and in forum uh, around the world uh, and making sure that our reputation is preserved and advanced. So I think credit where credit's due. Economically, obviously, uh, I'm concerned about some of the movements in the budget. Uh, I fear that this was uh, targeted uh, to address the li- uh, cost of living crisis for those on welfare payments, but not those that are working out there that are still uh, doing it pretty tough. And all it's done is fueled inflation by pumping more money to support those on welfare and the mums and dads that have got big mortgages out there are going to pay mortgages, uh, higher mortgages longer because we're fueling inflation. So sensible policy could leave, can, can actually bring down inflation without pumping money into it. And that's, that's where I think they've missed some of the levers that could be pulled. On regional Australia, um, we've copped it. I mean, the first budget, we lost $23 billion worth of infrastructure. That's road, rail and dams. And in this one, again, we lost more, nearly a billion in dams. But the infrastructure, what they did, and, and this is, you know, 12 months of a government, uh, you've got an infrastructure minister that's been there 12 months, two weeks before a budget says, I'm going to do a 90-day review into $120 billion worth of infrastructure programs. Now, that's not for four years, that's 10 years. So that gives investment confidence about the horizon of what's coming. So why would you do that? You've been there for 12 months and then you're going to pull a review two weeks before a budget. 
that's so Jim Chalmers didn't have to have his night of night giving bad news, particularly to regional Australians, about the rose. Now, I get many of your listeners will be in capital cities and they'll probably wipe their brow and go, you your beauty, We've, we're still going to get you know the Melbourne Rail Link and all these infrastructure for them. But let maybe, me maybe, maybe not for the <laughs> airport rail link. Maybe that's for the, well, the chopping block too. Yeah, I think you've got better chance than us. But what you understand is it's great, and I get that everyone wants to see that they've got the best roads in, in around their capital cities for congestion. But just understand that if you don't give people in regional Australia the tools they need that produce your food and fibre uh, to effectively and efficiently get it to you, it's going to cost more. And that's what's going to happen. Our roads are falling apart. We've had billions ripped out of road funding. Those are the tools that we need to be able to keep you fed at a cost-effective price. Uh, and you take that away, um, your cost of living is going to go up. Uh, and we're not going to be able to export as much because um, our pri- we're not efficient to be able to compete with. So I tried to be constructive. I went to the job summit. I thought it was important. I don't want to be a harping opposition. I went to the job summit, um, but I also have said to the Prime Minister, both privately and publicly, let's actually get away from this politics of pork barrelling. Let's give regional Australia an envelope of funding every budget for their infrastructure needs, uh, understanding what the formula is and the needs for the vast distances of roads, but also the infrastructure needs, and so that it's quarantined in our budget out of the infrastructure p- portion of it, so that there isn't this pork barreling accusations every every year or every budget. So I think this is where we need a maturity and a level of leadership from our political leaders, and I'm prepared to be constructive and sit in the room. Let's have that formula. Let's work through that, and then regional Australia will get their fair share, we'll be able to produce the food and fibre we need and get it out on a, on a boat or get it onto your plate quickly. Um, that's, the sort of, that's the sort of leadership I want to bring to the nationals, is not just sit there and knock them for the sake of it. I think um, they've done some good things. They definitely have. And what we've got to do is make sure where, there, where there's challenges is to try and get them to understand that a, nationals, a national approach doesn't necessarily always work. You, you'd have to have a regional lens on it as well. And if I can get the Prime Minister to understand that, then you know I don't think we should, regional Australia should wait two and a half years for another election to hope that we might get in for my great idea. If it's a good idea now, um, I'll back one of theirs and, and I hope that they'll back one of mine. And that's why I made that very initial decision to go to the job summit to say to the government, the nationals are going to be the adults in the room. We're going to turn up and we'll be constructive where there's opportunity to be so. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ticks for handling of foreign affairs. Does that include their handling of trade? Do you think they've done enough to improve uh, market access for, for farmers or does that all hinge on how they do in the in the EU deal? Yeah, I think we, we've got a – I think uh, in terms of trade, I, I think they've – carried on. And I think there's bipartisan support on that. There's some challenges in the EU free trade agreement that need to be ironed through. And where, again, Kevin Hogan's working constructively with Don Farrell, um, that, that's going to be a challenging agreement, particularly for agriculture. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got to be pragmatic on that. And I think in the greater good, we need to understand and work con- constructively with them. I think the handling of, of China, I think, um, has been very, very well done. Uh, in all honesty, I think the Prime Minister has maintained the values of protecting our democracy against foreign interference. Uh, he's been very firm on that. He's put clear markers down, as has Penny Wong, uh, and they've also maintained the dialogue. And I think that's important. That's the best way to resolve any dispute is through dialogue. And so I give them full ticks for that. I think they've done a great job. And I hope that we can now see um, some greater improvements, not just in dialogue, but now movements in removal of these tariffs. And I've had 
two uh, meetings with the ambassador here, the Chinese ambassador. And I've got to say, with all due respect, he's trying um, to send a very strong message back to Beijing that our principles won't change, but our our, our opportunity to to resolve any differences and to move forward is there. And I think that's that's a good place for us to be. And so the government um, should be congratulated for that. You mentioned wanting to be constructive and going to the Jobs and Skills Summit and, you know, you can help them and they can help you with some ideas for regional Australia implementing those. Are there particular policies that you expect to have input into or areas of cooperation you, you see with the Albanese government in the rest of the term? Yeah, well, look, uh, if they come to us, we're obviously um, – we actually hold up as something that's quite sacred to the nationals as a sovereign party, that we will do our own thing. Our party room um, is sacrosanct, and if it makes a decision to support one element, then uh, definitely we'll do that. I've also tried and had um, initial talks with the competition minister, Andrew Lee, about uh, protecting uh, not just farmers, but also small suppliers to uh, supermarkets uh, in reforms to competition policy uh, that we were moving to, but were too slow. Uh, I've got to say, uh, the Nationals wanted to move at a lot quicker pace in terms of uh, a compulsory grocery code. The current penalty on, on uh, breach in the grocery code, which is voluntary for our big supermarkets, is about $64,000. That's that's right, a checkout, that's a cost of doing business. Let's have punitive uh, penalties there, $10 million plus divestiture powers. I, I think if Woolies were, or Coles were to lose, you know, a Dan Murphy's because they did the wrong thing by a farmer or by a small supplier, that they'd make sure they're playing within the guidelines of fair and equitable trade because this is the problem. They have 74% of the retail market. That is a market imbalance and even the ACCC say that. So I think there's some reforms there that the nationals would like to, to work with the government to say, let's shift the dial on this, let's protect small business against big supermarkets, and it's regulatory. So if they're doing the right thing, Coles, Woolworths and Aldi shouldn't care one iota because if they're doing the right thing, as they say they always are, they won't then they, sh- they, sh- they should actually come forward and say, let's put this on the table uh, to give confidence because this is the problem. The small, the small supplier and particularly farmers are getting done over and this is where they just need protection. They're not asking for charity. They're just asking for a fair price that's transparent to their cost of production uh, and what it is to get on, onto your shelf uh, and onto their shelves and onto your plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his budget reply, Peter Dutton went in very hard uh, against the uh, updated net migration figure of 1.5 million people coming uh, to Australia in, in five years. Uh, do you have a different perspective on that, given regional areas are often you know, crying out for more residents and more workers? Yeah, my big issue, uh, we, and we've got to be honest, the Nationals uh, in the last government secured an ag visa, and that was about a pathway to permanent residency, to bring the next generation of migrants to regional Australia. And particularly to agriculture. And the greatest gift this country can give to any citizen around the world is citizenship here. So, what I fear in this is the, the number without the planning and without putting regional Australia on a competitive footing with metropolitan Australia. So, if you're simply saying we've got a national approach and we're just going to bring, we're, we're going to allow them to come in, they'll be citizens, well, invariably they're going to pick capital cities. They're not going to, they're not going to pick regional Australia. So, there's not enough planning or thought about the incentives that put regional Australia on a competitive footing with metropolitan Australia in, in attracting these migrants to Australia. So that's where the lack of planning is. And then when you cut out 120, well, you defer $120 billion worth of infrastructure, you want to bring one and a half million people in. Even in the bush, there's people who are struggling to, to find a place to rent, uh, let alone buy a house. You're bringing one and a half million new competitors into the marketplace. 
that's going to put pressure. So I'm all for, for migration, sensible migration that's planned and happy to be constructive. And that was one of the statements I made at the Job Summit. It's not just the ag visa. We need a regional skills visa that brings not just you know uh, ag workers, but actually we're, we could flat out finding mechanics, engineers, you know, uh, nurses, those any, any industry you can run the ruler over. So let's think differently and understand we've got to be on a competitive footing. So we'd rather be in the room having that conversation than not uh, and prepared to do that, but I just fear that we're going to have a cookie-cutter approach because uh, that's the easy thing to do, particularly for bureaucrats here in Canberra. Mm. I'm smiling because I'm remembering uh, Michael McCormack encouraging people to move to the regions to find love, which what wasn't a bad line was w- worth a try. We're not uh, bad-looking, most well, well, you, you, you do need You do need more planning ra- rather than just go- going out uh, on, on a hope like that. But um, uh, just changing topic now, uh, in November, the Nationals decided to oppose uh, the Indigenous voice in the Constitution, and that was before most of the debate about detail that we've seen since between Labor and the Liberals. It, how, how did you come to that uh, conclusion, and were you disappointed to lose a party member and Andrew G departing for the, for the crossbench in part over that issue? So, so obviously disappointed, but Andrew, Andrew was made fully aware, as is the culture in our party room, that you can cross the floor on anything. There, there, so long as you tell your party room, you look us in the eye, um, in fact, some cases it's celebrated. So that is that our culture is one that's very different to the other major parties. We actually celebrate diversity and the ability to say, I don't agree and I'm going to do something different. You're actually, you're actually standing goes up more than, than goes down. In terms of the detail, I think the Prime Minister has been very clear on this from the very start. The report, the the Langton report, um, is exactly what he has said from the moment um, he announced that he would move forward and this would be the premise of which he would move forward on, that it would be a representative body or somewhere, and I think it's page 16 to 18 of the, the Karma Langton report that goes very clearly around the number of people that will be on that representative body. So the detail has been there uh, for some time about the principle that the Prime Minister would be putting the Australian people. So I reject the fact that we came out with the detail. The detail was there and the Prime Minister has been very honest about that and I give him credit for that. Um, We got to a position of uh, not supporting the voice. If this was separated, if this was just about constitutional recognition rather than intertwining a representative body that we have lived experience before that has failed Indigenous people where the most disadvantage is, is where the nationals actually represent. So we have lived experience of that experience about it failing and not shifting the dial and closing the gap. So if this was just about constitutional recognition, if this was a question of saying Indigenous Australians were here first, we made mistakes. We ought to own up to those mistakes, uh, but we are better having been together and we are better sticking together than I sense uh, with great confidence my whole party room would support that premise. In fact, we would support uh, and actually campaign actively if that was the question being put to this country. The fact that he's intertwined a layer of bureaucracy that we have seen has failed before is the challenge that we have. And the Prime Minister, to his credit, has made it very clear he doesn't tend to change that and, and split those that question up. But that is, I think, unfortunately going to split the country. Um, if you only look at the polls now, this should be a unifying moment and it should have been about constitutional recognition, not about another layer of bureaucracy. We don't need a bigger bureaucracy, you just need a better one. And just so for practical understanding, 
there's going to be about 24 to 28 representatives and you're going to have someone that represents hundreds of different communities across hundreds of thousands of square kilometres uh, and come to Canberra and think that they can they can bring those communities together in the in the needs of how you change that local community because each one of those communities are so diverse in the challenges and the opportunities they have and I, I represent an electorate ten percent of the Australian landmass. Indigenous Australians in Warwick have different opportunities and challenges to, than they do in Cunnamulla or they do in Winton. Uh, and the same in, in Alice Springs is different to Water as it is to Carnarvon in Western Australia. How you can shift the dial and what we are so passionate about is empowering local elders in local communities. And I've seen that in my own electorate, whether you empower a local elder and a local council to design a program that they have input into, and it shifts the dial. And that's what we're saying. All that will happen is you're going to have someone that doesn't live in these communities, is from a different tribe, and is going to try and say, come to Canberra and say, oh, well, this is the program we should have. We'll fall into the same mistake we did last time, which we bear the consequences of. Bureaucrats here will say, oh, that's great. We'll generalise and we'll put this program out. It won't get the buy-in because the local elder in the local town hasn't done it. And that's where we simply need to get the bureaucracy out of Canberra, sitting around the campfires and town halls at a local level and listening to these elders. Because if you let, if you empower them, that's how you'll, you'll close the gap. But let me say the thing that I'm most disappointed in all this is that there is no ambitious goal to say as a nation that we will have closed the gap by 2030 or 2035. Where is the ambition in that? Instead, we are enshrining into our constitution. So there should be a target, you think? Oh, I, well, why shouldn't we? We, we? we do this every year. And, you know, if you, if you don't put in place a target to say we will have closed the gap, because there is invariably that much data out there now that we know. Um, we have shifted and closed the gap in some parts of, the, of, of Australia. We've done it very well. And we, should, we shouldn't uh, ignore that. It's not all doom and gloom. But where the disadvantage most is, is, is in those remote places where we represent. So you know where they are. And that's why if you have a very bespoke and local model of getting someone in there on the ground, you can actually shift that and you should have a target to say we have closed that. So I get many of your listeners from Metropolitan Australia um, you know, probably don't understand. We seek to understand them. We're just saying on this one, please seek to understand the nationals. This is a view that we take quite passionately because we see the disadvantage and we know how to fix it. And we failed as a government and governments of the past have failed because we haven't empowered those local elders at a very micro level. Not at a big regional level. We've got readers and listeners all over Australia, <laughs> including rural and regional areas. So, so don't feel you need to just address uh, metropolitan audiences. <laughs> now, the Liberals later opposed the Voice, uh, and then when Julian Lisa left uh, the Shadow Indigenous Affairs portfolio, Jacinta Price was uh, promoted to cabinet. Um, the the Nationals ended up uh, ahead on both counts there, with with one more person in cabinet and with the coalition adopting. Your your policy on the voice was was this a case of the the nationals' tail wagging the coalition dog? Oh look, um, I, I won't talk uh, about how the Liberal Party got to their position. Um, that's a matter for them. We have a transactional relationship, one in which we share many values, uh, some in which we don't, and that's that's not a bad thing to have diversity in a party room of different ideas, and that's, I think, healthy for our, for our democracy. Uh, we simply made it very clear that if Jacinda was was uh, the one that Peter wanted to advance, well, she sits in the Nationalist Party room, and we, we weren't, weren't going to take um, a loss of another position for that. Um, that's just the maturity of the relationship that Peter and I have, is that that it's not 
always arbitrary lines of us versus them. There's some pragmatism. And we, we had that sensible conversation about Jacinta was the right person to do the job. Uh, no matter if she sat in the Nats, the, the fact that we got an extra shadow cabinet position um, just means that, you know, obviously the Nats are, are sitting high up in the stirrups with an extra person, but that'll recalibrate in time. And, you know, we're pragmatic about that. We're doing, we're, we're making decisions what's right uh, for the coalition and the Liberal Party and the National Party. And I think that took a level of maturity that I think Peter and I were able to have because we've got a reasonably close relationship, even though we're from two different parties. The Victorian government has decided to end native forest logging by 2024, and the federal government is working on uh, environmental law reforms, which are likely to see the federal standards override regional forestry agreements. Um, Should native forest logging be allowed, and is the coalition likely to oppose the EPBC Act reforms over that point? Uh, Well, so firstly, I think the most disappointing thing on this is that Dan Andrews announced this in a press release, didn't have the courage to go and see these communities and tell the industry them to their face that they're going to do this. It's the same they did with the live sheep industry in Western Australia. Um, if you're going to change people's lives, uh, one in which they've been lawfully doing their job, making a living, you should, as political leaders, have the courage to go and tell them that you're going to change uh, their future and their livelihoods. So the fact that, that Dan Andrews didn't have the courage to do that, I think is disrespectful at best but disgraceful, likely, is the best description of that. Now, uh, in terms of native forests, I I think it's important that we are predicated on the science of the ability to be able to do that. And and that's what the nationals have always said. Obviously, we we would uh, obviously like to see and continue to see uh, more plantation forestry as sustainability because the biodiversity and the environmental impact of native forests is important. But we've come a long way. I think we log one in 14,000 trees in a native forest. So the economics, I think, will also be coming challenging for the industry. But um, that's where there needs to be, and there is an opportunity, particularly in forestry, where you can ramp up a state government who is invariably the largest state holder, can actually ramp up and get industries moving in, in particularly um, in forestry, estate forestry, uh, plantation forestry. So there's just it just seems to be an ideological view without without any practical understanding of the reality of the lives that he's about to change. So uh, in respect to the EPBC Act, we'll obviously work through it, but we're concerned about another layer um, of bureaucracy that cl- that closes down and slows down investment. Uh, there has to be a balance, uh, and I- I'm, I'm all for protecting the environment. That biodiversity stewardship program, one of the opportunities in that also is around offsets because you can measure particularly the biodiversity that's lost, not just you know just a, a blanket number of trees that you lost. You've actually got to look at the biodiversity you lost, and if you're going to have an offset, then you should be able to make sure that you can demonstrate it has currency, as we talked before about. So this is where we've got to be pragmatic in understanding protecting our environment and if we do, then can we do that sensibly with offsets? So the detail of, of this is something we'll look at and look carefully at, but the principles about trying to make sure that government stays out of people's lives as much as we can is one that we won't walk away from and we want to make sure we get that balance right in protecting the environment and helping the, the economy to grow. Mm-hmm. Our rural and regional editor Gabby Chan reported on Wednesday that PwC was warned for using confidential information gleaned from meetings with senior executives at the Agriculture Department when making unsolicited proposals for work. Was it a mistake for PwC to be selected as a strategic partner in 2021? And are you concerned about them spruiking for work in that way? Well, well I am. I think they've done the wrong thing. There's place for uh, contractors uh, in in giving advice uh, to the 
Australian government. We shouldn't run away from that because it, there's times where uh, there are short periods of time where you need expertise that aren't in the department and instead of hiring them and keeping them on the Australian taxpayers' uh, foot for, for time in memoriam, you can actually be agile and save Australian taxpayers money and then get the information you and the, the data that you want and then move on, make a decision, move on. PwC, if they've done the wrong things, as would appear has been quite clearly enunciated now, they should pay a penalty for that. Now, um, you always go into these contractual arrangements in goodwill. That's the premise of how we operate as a as an economy and as a society. So it's important that PwC pays a price for this. Um, I think that there was good intent from both the department and PwC in starting it, but you can't stop people from doing the wrong thing. And when you do, you simply need to, to pay the price. So PwC should pay the price, but we shouldn't move away from the principle that these contractors do play a role for us in saving the taxpayers' money and getting agile advice uh, at a cost-effective way. Now, at the start, you, you mentioned uh, policy development and building a, a movement in regional Australia and uh, also appeal to, to young people and, and to women. Um, are there particular policy ideas in, in formation that you think would help you know, well, win those votes? Yeah, and, and look, um, one of the things that I articulated at, at the Job Summit, in fact, heard from women right up and down the East Coast in regional communities, was our challenge is, is not necessarily just about childcare affordability. It's about childcare accessibility. Um, we've got a cost of living crisis in regional Australia as well, but in many cases, it's about being able to get a childcare place to go to work to pay for it all. And we can't do that. And we had programs in place. We had a $2 billion accelerator program that had a, had a fund in that that was to partner in building new places uh, and capacity and scale. And, and I went to the job summit and said, you're going to spend $4.7 billion on childcare subsidies to give a $21,500 subsidy to a family earning $350,000 to $500,000 in a capital city and even the bush. Um, you know, I, I get that the cost of living for those people is high too, but just quarantine some of that 4.7 into those programs we had to lift the numbers, to create new childcare places for us in regional Australia. Um, so I want to make sure that we're, we've got a policy setting that says to families, we're going we're gonna to tackle this issue. We're going to have something substantive that you can hang your hat on to know that you, if you want to go back to work, you're going to have that ability to be able to have a childcare place that you can trust. Uh, so we'll be very much on that. I think the big issues uh, around health, regional health is huge uh, and we're copying that, uh, particularly on things like the designated priority areas that has been extended into capital cities, which, may, which was limiting foreign doctors just to work in regional areas. The government extended that into allowing them to work in peri-urban areas. So foreign doctors are just running the ruler over and so I'd rather live near Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane than in Cunnamulla. And so we're losing doctors. Uh, so we've got, to, we've got to have a sensible health, regional health policy. And particularly, I think the one thing around engagement with, with young people is about um, the environment and articulating to them that we are serious about net zero and about how we achieve it. And one of the, one of the things that, that I see uh, and they – they actually uh, engage with is when we talk about emerging new technology like small-scale modular nuclear, we're not talking about hundreds of these across the country. We do, there are probably three or four or five of them across the East Coast plugged in where existing coal-fired power stations were, uh, so you don't need new transmission lines to firm up renewables. You can only make renewables work if you have firming power, and that's not me saying that, that's AEMO. Um, battery technology is not there yet, and it may get there one day, but you need to firm it up and you have to firm that up with gas 
or if you looked at potentially uh, opening our minds up to this zero emissions technology, then why wouldn't we? I think we should let the market decide, but technology will solve our problem. And I'm all for renewables, uh, but I, I, we've also got problems about renewables losing its social license. Solar panels should be on people's roofs, uh, shouldn't be on veget- uh, native vegetation, where we're seeing hundreds of thousands of hectares of native vegetation being knocked down for wind towers, for solar panels and for and for transmission lines. We've, it's losing its social licence. Put it where it's needed the most, which is on people's roofs in the concentrated area where power's needed the most, which is in capital cities and in regional communities. Don't put it on prime agricultural land or native vegetation. Put wind towers out offshore uh, and away from the Great Barrier Reef. And I can tell you, even the fishing industry um, are in favour of this because it creates artificial reefs for them. Uh, and you know that also cuts away the need for these 28,000 kilometres of transmission lines. So it's knocking down native vegetation. I mean, I was in Yungala up in uh, North Queensland last week. We're going to spend $12 billion on a pumped hydro that is going to destroy the habitat of platypus, a rare eel, a koala. Uh, it is one of the most magnificent places, and it's like an untouched rainforest. It effectively is, and we're going to we're going to go and put a pumped hydro uh, across that landscape is is silly. There there is a place for renewables, and that's what the nationals want to be able to demonstrate. Let's put them where they need to be. Let's make them work, and let's get to zero emissions in in energy. And I think we can. I think if we open our opportunities up to this new emerging technology, we'll get there before 2050. I, I think, you know, that counts for about 30-odd percent of our emissions out of the energy sector. I think we can get there, uh, but we need to be prepared to have that mature conversation, plan it properly so there's no unintended consequences to the environment that we're seeing at the moment, uh, really perverse outcomes. Let's make sure it's in its right place, cut down the need for new transmission lines because ultimately you're going to pay for that anyway. Most of your energy bill at the moment, about 40-50% of your energy bills are poles and wires now. So let's if you put it on people's roofs and concentrate to where all the energy sources required, doesn't that make sense and cuts down the need uh, for a whole lot of new transmission lines knocking down landscape and taking away farmland that, that'll take away productive landscape that'll push up your food prices? So just some common sense approaches. We want to be able to demonstrate that particularly to young people, that we've got a commitment to this and how we achieve it, and we can do that with common sense and planning, and I think we can lead the world with reliable, affordable energy that is zero emissions. Excellent. I think that's all we have time for, but thank you very much for joining us, David Littleproud. Thanks for having me. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. Next week is another busy sitting week in Canberra with Senate estimates continuing, so please join us again next time. Thank you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. 